Hello everyone. The climate crisis is the greatest existential threat that humanity faces, and yet we're collectively unable to deal with it adequately due to a whole host of systemic forces which incentivize exploitation and destruction of the planet. What do we do? Well, today, Annika Mock and Christian Mark James of SG Climate Rally join Sean Francis Hahn and I to talk about the global, the Singaporean, and perhaps most importantly, the human context of the climate crisis. And we talk about how structural change can occur and what SG Climate Rally is doing, how they seek to create change and how they're going to sustain themselves, sustain their movement, and how Singaporeans can make a difference. As always, if you find this helpful, do support the production of more of these podcasts by becoming a member of New Narrative at newnarrative.com slash join, or you can donate at newnarrative.com slash donate. And now, Subash! Hello and welcome to Political Agenda with me, PJ Thumb. I am sitting here with three guests in front of a map of Southeast Asia. I'm wearing a green and pink batik shirt and my pronouns are he, him. And joining me today, as always, my co-host, editor-in-chief of Wake Up Singapore, Sean Francis Han. How are you doing, Sean? I'm good. Yeah, I'm glad to be back again. I'm wearing a white shirt uh, and my pronouns are he, him. So I'm very excited to get into this because we're talking about climate change. It's an issue that's dear to my heart. Uh, and of course, we're going to be talking to one of the biggest and most visible climate change activist groups in Singapore, and that's SG Climate Rally. So I'm joined by two representatives today, and those are Annika and Christian. So would you go, like to go ahead and uh, describe yourselves? Yeah. Sure. Hi, I'm Annika. I am a fourth year environmental studies major from Yale University College. I'm wearing a white shirt, and my pronouns are she, her. Hi, um, my name is Christian. I use he, him, his pronouns. Um, I am wearing a blue floral shirt. I just graduated last year, but now I'm just working at a tech company and, and obviously working with SG Climate Rally on the site. So let's just jump right into it. What is SG Climate Rally? How did it get started? When was it formed? What does it do? You know, what goes on in the day-to-day -day operations of SG Climate Rally? So SG Climate Rally is a youth-driven movement. We started last, well, June, uh, mid last year, and we formed with the sort of goal to uh, do something around uh, Global Climate Action Week, which was in September. And so we had a couple of months to figure out uh, what would be the sort of collective action um, event that uh, comes out of Singapore, because a lot of international uh, sort of movements were working up to that date. And I think the question was, are we ready for a climate strike in Singapore? Uh, and I think the sort of answer among us was ostensibly yes. And so we decided to do it on 21st September. Um, and it was an event at Hong Lim Park. Um, and we had 2,000 people come and gather, listen to speeches about the sort of urgent need for climate action in Singapore. Uh, we had a die-in where everybody collapsed on cue um, just to sort of represent the actual existential threat that climate change presents to all of us. Um, and yeah, from there, we've been growing the movement, trying to engage as many people within civil society, within Singaporean society, um, various stakeholders in 
mobilizing as many people as we can to push for uh, climate policies that are commensurate with IPCC recommendations um, for a livable future for everybody. Right. So, I mean, we're living in the COVID times. These are strange times to be in. And of course, we couldn't have another SG Climate Rally this year. So Christian, can you tell us what has been going on? What are the projects that SG Climate Rally has been working on this year? Yeah, um, I think... Actually, I think for us within the movement, um, we talked a lot about whether or not we, sh- we even wanted to have another rally, just because it kind of seemed a bit weird if this became like an annual thing and, you know, it's just kind of like a festival that people come to, you know, every every year just for one day and then you kind of like disappear. Um, that didn't really kind of, I guess, match the, you know, kind of like the urgency that we were all feeling. And so if we were going to do another rally, it was going to be kind of like very different. And, you know, I think that was always something that, um, yeah, we, we, we weren't super tight to having another rally. But I think, um, you know, just kind of building off what Onika was saying about SG Climate Rally also, I guess we focus a lot on kind of um, trying to educate people on the need for structural change and systemic action. Um, a lot of the discourse and narrative, not just in Singapore, but, you know, all over the world is always about kind of like the importance of individual action. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously that is important, but also we're at a stage where you we, we need kind of like radical structural institutional change. And so mm-hmm. then all the initiatives that we were doing, I think, stem from kind of like this need to try and raise awareness about that mm-hmm. um, and also to try and make it a more political issue. And so kind of right after the rally, uh, kind of going into 2020, um, the first thing we kind of did was um, this thing called Green Watch, which was this initiative to look at um, the different parties' um, political manifestos, their climate-related policies, and like yeah, assess them. Um, look at uh, yeah, try and try and um, build some sort of climate scorecard. Um, and something else also that, you know, actually Climate Rally is quite focused on is, is, is trying to educate people on intersectionality, right? The climate crisis is going to disproportionately affect groups that are already marginalized. And so reflected in this, this climate scorecard then were also not just, you know, kind of like looking at technical policies and, and, and kind of like measuring their efficacy, but also looking kind of like how these policies will ensure um, that if we do and when we do, sorry, when we do transition, uh, you know, to to um, to more green way of, of living, do they, in fact, protect the people who you know need to be protected? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and also looking at things like how does the space in Singapore encourage you know um, civic engagement and things like this? And so these were the things that were measured in the in the, in the climate scorecard. Um, after Green Watch, we then um, came together to form a coalition with with other activists, other organizers in Singapore, and we helped uh, um, co-organize activism in crisis. Um, and because I think an intention for us was also to start trying to build, obviously, partnerships, allyships, and, and just build, I guess, a larger civil society movement within Singapore and, and try to get green groups to realize how political the climate crisis is and also you know other civil society groups to realize that yeah you you need to start thinking about the climate crisis um, and then that brings us to kind of now where we are you know working with um, some other organizations like made for more welcome in my backyard um, we're looking at kind of how can we support uh, migrant workers in this time looking at what it you know, what the lockdown does, you know, for, I guess, yeah, their mental health 
and I think so that's that's coming out soon you know um, and also how um, we've had discussions with them about how it is so different from kind of being in nature as opposed to now kind of just being trapped you know what that does to the mental health and so you know trying to connect these things again um, and I think so that's that's kind of like what we're doing because I think that's all kind of I guess the main spirit of, of, of SG Climate Rally is trying to focus on climate justice so all our work kind of centers centers around that. Mm-hmm. So you brought up some very interesting issues like mental health, migrant yeah. labor, right? Um, now, I want to just ask, okay, um, regarding like structural issues, radical structural change, right, which you mentioned just now, um, what would that look like? You know, what does that look like to see that come to fruition? That's a big question. Mm-hmm. And I believe it was asked also to the climate education guest that you had. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think on a similar vein, there are just so many sort of things that need to co-evolve at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the first being just a recognition of the crisis in our uh, leaders. And, you know, obviously we see how that can be a piecemeal gesture from like South Korea uh, declaring a climate crisis and then shortly kind of endorsing a coal power plant in Vietnam, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, beyond just declarative statements, we need to see um, an actual roadmap uh, to decarbonization and to a just transition. And those things need to start with with a sort of commitment from the top and uh, a sort of permanent cease to the need to uh, individualize climate responsibility, um, which is, you know, a, a sort of phenomenon that we see a lot in parliament now. And yeah, I think there needs to be a radical shift from the myths that we have been um, peddling around individual responsibility, um, around the need to rely on sunset industries like the petrochemical industry. Um, and yeah, I think th- alongside these shifts, there needs to be a, a cultural shift where people, you know, slow down themselves and are given the opportunities to embrace, you know, working less. And uh, we had a great um, chapter at the end of uh, Eating Chili Crab where, you know, Bertrand laid out a post-carbon future, right? And that involved degrowth. And, you know, one of Climate Rally's principles moving forward is going to be, you know, uh, re- denouncing uh, unfettered economic growth and, you know, having that not be a radical statement because it's so plain to see that these current trajectories that we're on are harmful. And I, I, I don't want to, you know, have future children of mine, if I'm having any, um, kind of raised uh, and, and chastised for, for, for looking at a system and looking at business and usual and business as usual and saying that, you know, that's not right. Um, yeah, and I think that we also need to create an environment for, uh, as Tommy was, was saying, you know, loving critics to come to the fore and be celebrated. And, you know, this involves there being a spirit of collaboration on the level of governance where, you know, individual voices are prized and, you know, youths that are bringing up concerns um, are valued and not seen as pariahs. Um, and, yeah, so those are, I think, a lot of the changes that are needed and certainly not an exhaustive list. Mm. Um, but, yeah. So... You brought up uh, unfettered economic growth, right? Mm-hmm. And that's endemic, just intrinsic, or just at the very heart of capitalism itself, right? Yeah. So do you ever get this sense that, you know, in a way, we are putting the cart before the horse here, that the economics comes first? Because I think a lot of people find it very difficult to imagine a life outside of capitalism, a little bit harder than uh, to imagine collective climate action. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to like, shoot the hard question at Christian here. <laughs> but do you, do you feel like there's a sense in which the economic bit 
is so, so, so important and so hard for us to conceptualize that it makes it a little bit difficult to push the climate agenda further? So, I mean, I don't necessarily think that it's, it's, it's hard to imagine. Um, I think there is like a lot of literature out there on, on what it means to move away from, yeah, you know, unfettered um, growth um, and to kind of recalibrate kind of, you know, how we measure success. And there's just like a lot of literature out there on, you know, moving away from things like the Human Development Index because that only looks at very specific things, including national income, which obviously then, you know, is premised upon this idea of continuous growth and things like that. So there are a lot of alternative models out there for sure. Um, and obviously, I think, um, I don't think it's, 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 unintentional or unrelated that these things also don't necessarily come to the fore, right? We're not necessarily talking about some of these alternative ways of living, alternative ways of measuring success, right? It is, I think, quite intentional that some of these things are not necessarily being entertained, uh, you know, and, and, and not being uh, integrated into kind of like common discourse, you know? So I do think that there are, there are indeed, you know, alternatives out there that we can, um, you know, that we, 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 we should be trying to push for. And I guess that's kind of where... SG Climate Rally comes in, in in that like, yeah, you know, frankly, obviously it's not necessarily our job to come up with, you know, you know, kind of like economic models and things like that. Mm -hmm. But what we're saying is that there are indeed things out there and we want to try and kind of raise collective awareness of kind of this need to move away or to just kind of rethink kind of our priorities, right? If, if we can get kind of everyone around us to think, hey, okay, do we actually really need to be um, increasing GDP for a country like Singapore? If we can get people to think about that more, then I think that will also signal to like politicians and other institutions that like, look, okay, this is important, right? Now we, I guess, have to do our jobs and actually think of the policy. And maybe some of these people who are raising these things have ideas that we can collaborate with. So I guess that's kind of where SG Climate Rally fits and kind of, I guess, what we think about the future we want to see and how we can get there. Mm. What, what stands out to me is you're working among the, the most powerless people in Singapore, mm. right? So there's, there's us, we're activists, you're, you know, both, you're in university or recently graduated. We have very little power to influence Singapore in the, in the sort of conventional, uh, conventional way. And then you're working with people on the ground and especially with migrant workers who are probably the definition of the most oppressed people by the capitalist system, by the political system. They don't even get uh, you know, the right to stay or the right to vote. So why work with uh, the... Oh, are you, so you're working with sort of the victims of capitalism, but are you also trying to work with the people who wield capital, right? Because they're the ones, the most powerful force in Singapore is actually foreign capital. Mm. Um, given the, you know, the way our economy is set up, our political system is set up, foreign capital ha has an oversized influence on our policies and on our government and arguably more than voters themselves, mm -hmm. right? Because our elections aren't free and fair and because you know, the political system suppresses our ability to speak out. So are you actually trying to work with capital um, or at least pressure capital to change? Um, do you have any strategies in, in to, to affect the people who actually can make a difference? So I think that one thing that we've 
been understanding from the last year of our existence is just that those doors aren't open. Um, you know, and any kind of effort to have a discussion with capital um, is fruitless, really. Mm. And, and so I think from our point of view, it's a matter of trying to gain critical mass um, uh, from the ground up. And yeah, that, that really is a sort of ongoing process and and certainly you know movements take years to do that and we've only been around for one and so um yeah i would say that we don't have any faith that there could be even an honest dialogue with um systems of capital and 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 that and and the sort of institutions that uplift and keep it going right um yeah i just don't find that to be possible um yeah so I want to jump off that point, right? So you had Desmond Lee and Louis Ng um, come on and get affiliated with uh, SG Climate Rally, right? So what is that kind of like working with power? And how does that factor into what you just said, which is, you know, systems of capital being uneasy allies? Yeah. So I think an interesting thing that exists in Singapore is this like I said, the, the, the doors are closed to corporations per se, but to your elected representatives, the doors are slightly ajar. And so I would say um, we were reached out to by these ministers. And, uh, you know, it, it, it was alarming to us really that that, that you know, a small fry uh, group of people uh, would be, I suppose, uh, even under the radar of, of these ministers. Um, but I think, interestingly, they were open to dialogue. Um, and we had a audience with with these ministers alongside uh, Amy Call um, before the rally and after the rally as well. Um, and uh, Desmond and Lewis also attended our rally and were photographed at our rally. And um, I think the strategy that we employed, um, if we can even call it a strategy, was that you know we didn't want to close that door mm-hmm. just yet um, because you know it was important to us that you know we get a certain kind of two-way discussion going um, about our demands and our demands at the time and still are um, you know adherence to IPC's recommendations and so peaking emissions uh, by 2030 and uh, completely uh, zero net emissions by 2050 mm-hmm. and that's not a goal that, that that's been met but you know these uh demands of us require that we have a discussion and justify ourselves to these people. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we were keeping those doors open. And it, it is a difficult process because in the wake of Climate Rally, you know, there was a lot of talk um, in Parliament and, uh, you know, for the first time, climate action, climate action and uh, emissions, um, a, a pathway to kind of scaling down emissions was brought to the table in parliament. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know Anthea Ong asked a question mm-hmm. about whether or not um, there would be a consideration of our demands at all. Um, and I thought that was very significant. Um, and it was met, obviously, with, with the sort of usual PR statements by uh, Teo Chi Hing. Uh, but I think we have to play this difficult game of um, wanting to keep that door still open whilst also, you know, needing to hold people to account and, you know, wanting to call out when, you know, bad behavior exists or when, you know, just plain, um, I suppose, falsehoods exist um, Mm -hmm. in parliament. And yeah, it is, it is difficult. And another thing that has sprung up and you talked about, you know, how do we deal with our smallness, right? Mm -hmm. And I think 
one thing that we were trying to bring across is that you know a youth climate movement coming out from the ground uh, with you know such traction with two thousand people and with you know a very very I would say successful um, event should not be something to celebrate. You know that is a failure on the part of our elected representatives, and you know when it's met with this romantic language about oh it's so wonderful to see young people rise up and and you know take charge of um, environmental action, that to me is is um, expressing ignorance at the fact that there are some core failures that have existed in in our political system and in in the approach of of, of our elected representatives, and um, to me that kind of um, I guess recognition of our anguish and our fears are diminished at the second that you romanticize what we're trying to do. Um, yeah, I, I don't want to be pat on the back. I mm. want action. Mm. Um, is, is there a sense in which also that, you know, I, I understand a bit about keeping the door open, but is there a sense in which movements get co-opted? There's that risk there. There's that sense in which a lot of these dialogues become a prop they become a kind of gimmick or a PR tool in order to, you know, kind of posture that, hey, we're new, we're, we're in touch with the young ones. Um, please vote us back in so we can continue authoritarian rule. Thank you very much. Yeah, is there a sense in which you feel that might be happening, is happening, or there's a risk of that happening? For, sh- for sure. I mean, I think something that we uh, we try and be very intentional about is is, you know, kind of remaining autonomous, um, and I think this also kind of goes in line with with how I mean, apart from I guess kind of like these these gigs once in a while, we we try not to put like uh, you know specific faces uh, for the movement. Right, the idea is that we are decentralized and it's not necessarily something you can kind of just like put your hands on. Um, because um, yeah, because we we recognize the power of cooptation, history of cooptation also. Um, and, and, and trying our best to still be, to yeah, negotiate, I suppose, the space of, of autonomy that we currently kind of have. Um, but how then do we kind of leverage, I suppose, yeah, leverage these, these opportunities that we get. Um, and I think um, we're quite privileged that I think we, um, you know, obviously have kind of different organizations within within the the climate movement who um, you know employ different strategies and who can also do this work of maybe yeah you know spending the labor to to talk to to talk to ministers or talk to parliamentarians or just kind of like other other um, you know other people uh, within within the state um, you know who do the closed door dialogues or whatever and you know those things are are, are important and you know it it is it, it helps also with obviously kind of figuring out the you know inner workings and inner mechanisms you know and so i think um at times we are intentional with with whether or not for example kind of like yeah our, our movement sometimes needs to show up or whether or not you know another group can do it or how do we kind of yeah negotiate that right because i think at the end of the day a lot of a lot of the movements that we we, we are affiliated to also we're all on the same page and, and we, we think about how do we yeah deploy kind of like the best person to go to go for this for this particular thing um also on top of that i guess with actually climate rally and kind of what we're trying to do with expanding the movement that also means kind of expanding kind of different strategies or employing different strategies and so something that came out of our general elections campaign Greenwatch was that um we kind of have this this kind of virtual space right now called neighborhood Greenwatch, and so the idea is that you have you know passionate uh, and interested constituents who who do want to engage 
engage their parliamentarians, right? And so then they can and they do are willing to, you know, have those dialogues, have those very specific kind of kind of engagement and, and they can do it, right? Mm-hmm. But it's still it's still for the cause. It's still kind of, you know, hoping that we slowly shift the needle. It's just that, yeah, someone else now does it and we've kind of empowered and enabled men enabled them to do that because we've kind of created the space. Mm-hmm. Can I pick up on a word you used, leverage? And I think that actually uh, is really important because preventing or at least keeping yourselves from being co-opted, right? You need leverage. Uh, if you look historically in Singapore, a lot of very successful activism movements have been co-opted by the government because uh, the PAP government has uh, funded them, right? And given them um, money to make them sustainable. And in exchange, they then accept uh, the premise on which the PAP conducts politics, which is you don't independently organize and mobilize, but you take part in our you know, slow, considered policy-making process, a very elite process, closed-door sessions, right, where the elites decide what is going to happen and what the policies are, rather than, you know, uh, political contestation, political mobilization, the things you were talking about earlier. So, um, I'm not going to put you on the spot and ask you what you'll do if, if you end up in a position where the government says, uh, okay, we'll give you lots of money and we'll recognize you, but you have to stop organizing um, and mobilizing you know, politically. But instead, I want to ask about, um, have you actually thought about how to increase your leverage as an organization? Uh, first, via um, the increasing influence, especially influence of voters via organization and mobilization but also your sustainability as an organization and your ability to then act independently of government funding. Mm. Right? I think we just had a discussion uh, in Parliament, uh, we're recording this on the 10th of October, where, um, who was it, was lamenting the, uh, how arts funding, um, you know, the, the whole um, artistic industry is heavily relying on government. Uh, oh, as in, in Parliament, is it? Yeah, someone oh, in I Parliament is saying, I forget now. Um, but, you know, that's how uh, independent spaces are co-opted, through funding, yeah. right? So, so yeah, that's my, my broad question is about your leverage. And uh, on the one hand, which you've talked about a bit already, influence over voters via organisation and mobilisation. And on the other hand, your sustainability as an organisation and your ability mm-hmm. to act independently of the government. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so I think I can speak to increasing leverage um the best thing that i one of the greatest strengths of climate reality is that we really don't need any money to operate um you know we don't have any paid staff you know we just have a website and that requires i don't know how much a, a month but yeah, yeah but it's 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 really nothing that will set us back at all um and what i find to be the most important aspect of climate rally is that it's not beholden to anybody um, and I think for as long as we exist we will probably stay that way um, yeah and you know we don't rely on sponsors we don't rely on uh, consistent donors um, and I and I really appreciate that and yeah it will probably stay that way we are youth driven we each have full-time jobs or full-time preoccupations um, yeah and I think uh that autonomy is one of the reasons why we are so strong. Um, yeah, and to your point about sustainability, I uh, within Climate Rally, we 
are actively structuring ourselves as a decentralized group, which means to say that we have a certain set of core principles and values. And as soon as you kind of come on board and subscribe to these values, you are uh, empowered to start a working group and begin a campaign under our climate rally name. And so the, uh, uh, what is it, Open Doors, Project Open Doors kind of sprung from one of those sort of free working groups, right? And as long as you have an idea and it's passed by the group, um, you are free to use our resources. Uh, our publicity team is um, sort of available to you. You can use our name. You can, you know, do whatever as long as it corresponds to our principles. And that's the way that we grow and that's the way that we sustain a sort of visible presence um, and push the movement really. And I think that has been quite successful because there is no uh, one authority that is, you know, having to check every single working group. Um, you know, there isn't this sense of, um, I suppose, burnout setting us back because if one person is burnt out, um, another 10 people will come on board and start a new project. Um, yeah, and I think uh, a sort of metaphor that we always use is the idea of a choir. And, you know, if within a choir, one person stops singing, the melody and, and, and the sound is still consistent um, because, you know, you have so many other people who are backing you up and sustaining that. Um, yeah, so I find that to be um, one of the strengths that keeps us running sustainably. I, I want to sort of ask here as well, like one of the things about decentralization here is you know, obviously reflected by the fact that there are two, two of you, two guests, right? And that comes from that philosophy of not wanting to have a centralized image or person that represents the whole movement, right? And while I really like that idea, right, um, there are also, I think, huge benefits of having a sort of figurehead, right? Um, somebody who represents the ideas, who kind of takes credibility or credence for the entire movement, somebody who you can speak to, you can go to immediately, um, you know, just a general leader, just a general face uh, of a movement, right? So those are, I think, big advantages, and you're choosing to deliberately to eschew them for this sort of decentralized um, lack of a figurehead kind of approach. So what 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 is the thought process behind that? What's the philosophy behind that? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I think some of it also had to do with just kind of like, I mean, it's not circumstance, but like, I think that, you know, historically when the group came together, it was like mm. a few people who so were like, oh, okay, okay, I guess we're all, you know, part of this. Mm. Um, but also, you know, I the the... I think it's also reflective kind of of the issue also in that, you know, we don't necessarily want this to be just to become kind of like, you know, like a niche subject or, you know, like to relegate and kind of how current systems work, you know, to make kind of like the environmental movement kind of like, you know, very specific or also just like, you know, then you have very specific images of, of, of the people who care about the climate. And I guess our idea is hopefully, yeah, with, with kind of decentralizing, we're also hoping to kind of reflect what we want. Um, we want people to think or how we want people to approach the climate crisis. We want to like normalize it. Right. And also normalize, um, yeah, that the climate crisis is indeed a, a political issue. And so then being able to kind of, yeah, reflect that in the movement um, helps also then with, with yeah, people kind of coming on board whenever they want to and, and kind of doing whatever whatever they want because I think something that's quite important to us also is that I think something that we've alluded to, right, and I think, PJ, you alluded to is how multifaceted 
yes, the climate crisis is, or just kind of like the system that we're in, right? And so that is definitely going to require different strategies, different kind of mini theories of change, different people who have different ideas. Um, and so then it is it is to our advantage to try and, 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 and spread out as much as possible and, and to wield kind of whatever we have, mm-hmm. because this thing is, yeah, it is, it is, it is. It's, it's, you know, it's so big in scale. Yeah, I think also just a quick caveat is that like we're not um, indiscriminate in terms of like who can who can start what, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think that it's important that we still have certain guiding principles, right? And so one of them being, you know, we are a movement to stop humanity's harmful impact on the climate and drive emissions to net zero by 2050. And that's a target that hopefully all campaigns keep in their mind. Mm-hmm. Another one is that, you know, we... Uh, prioritize the rights and flourishing of humans and that you know we believe that that flourishing should not come at the cost of the planet or environmental degradation Mm. Um, yeah and so I think these things give people a good framework upon which they can use their creativity and their resources however they wish Um, and I think another thing that I wanted to uh, talk about was also the sort of like risk that is associated with being in climate rally and I think part of the beauty of having you know a sort of unidentifiable head or rather no head at all is that risk isn't um, kind of uh, disproportionately absorbed by one person Um, and unfortunately that's really the kind of mindset and, and consideration that you have to have when you're you know taking on these giants and um yeah, just me and Chris being here also, you know, I guess is is at the back of our minds as a certain idea of like, you know, who among the government is watching and like what kind of um, public enemy status do we have now? Um, yeah, and like like I said earlier, these are all just things that I, I, I would hate um, to exist for the next generation. But unfortunately, right now, these are things we have to navigate. So. Mm-hmm. I have to say, you know, that makes a lot of sense to me if you look at the success of, uh, say, the Hong Kong movement. Well, success in relative terms. Uh, but also, of course, me personally, new narrative. I feel that I am a point of strength and weakness, being visibly the leader of new narrative. And it does, uh, it does worry me that uh, if, if the government wants to take me out, it would severely handicap new narrative. So trying to build an organization that outlasts, that can survive you is very, very difficult, right? It's like, you know, if the PSP loses Dr. Tan Ching Bok or, well, I guess the SDP has two two leaders now. Mm. Um, so they have, but they're still very visibly these two people. Um, but what, you, what you're doing is creating a movement where the idea is stronger than any individual and there's no... Um, there's no one point of, of weakness and I, I really respect that. I think it's very hard to do, but I think it is very a very valid and in long term very effective strategy. So that means a lot. Kudos. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Actually no on that something that we, we had a meeting with with, with another organizer um, from 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 another country because we just you know we're always you know this is an ecosystem, right? So we, we, we were talking to someone else and someone was saying that like yeah you know if the, with with decentralization and then kind of building the movement, I think the idea is that like, you know, if one day the whole movement got wiped out and there's kind of only one person left, can they restart it, right? Do they have the know-how and the resources and the knowledge to really, and kind of like, yeah, know the belief systems of the movement to restart it and get it going again. And I think that really, really stuck to me and, and really struck me because then I think that's also, I guess, yeah, kind of what we want to do also is, is what does it mean for this movement to live beyond just like, Mm-hmm. Me and Annika and other people. Yeah, I, I want to ask about the uh, the benefit and the cost as well. 
about putting yourself out there as a young activist, right? Um, I mean, the cost is 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 massive. I'm sure, right? As you mentioned earlier, um, there is a fear, a looming fear of who's watching, whose blacklist are you on? Can I get a job in the future? What are people gonna think about me? Um, but at the same time, it is. I have to say, like from personal, it's really rewarding, right? There is a, you gain so much, so much knowledge as well. So, I mean, I, I kind of want to know how do you kind of negotiate that, you know, maybe with your parents or your friends, with your employers, how do you kind of negotiate that? Maybe Chris, since you're working, like, I kind of want to know. Because <laughs> I'm about to get yeah, a job sure. at some point, you know, and right, then right. Um, <laughs> I, and I think a lot of our, a lot of young activists out there are kind of thinking about, this is doable for now, right. but then mm-hmm. what happens when I need to get a job? Yeah. 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 No, I think that's like that's yeah. I mean, for sure. I mean, I think that I'm, I I mean, I can't I can't deny that that obviously plays on my mind, you know, constantly for sure, you mm-hmm. know. Um, you know, uh, how much I should self-censor or what I should and shouldn't say, definitely it, it's still there, but I think um I think there are kind of maybe certain privileges that are accorded to me because for example, I'm yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not I'm not like a I'm not like a public scholar or, you know, I'm, I'm not a, you know, I don't work for the public service and things like that. And obviously that means I, some, some, some certain level of, of freedom. And, and I think at least within the movement, something that we think about is obviously kind of like, yeah, safety and, you know, who, who, who can come out in, in public when, 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 when needed, right. And who can kind of sit back and maybe do some of the, 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 the back end stuff. Mm. Um, and that's kind of how we also then divvy up the work, I suppose, in that, like, I, I recognize that I'm right now not necessarily beholden to kind of any sort of, yeah, any sort of body, um, I'm not bonded or whatever. Right. Mm. And so then that is something that I acknowledge. And so then, yeah, I, I step up and then other people who recognize that that's not necessarily something they can do. They then, you know, try and do work in, 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 a, in a different form, mm. uh, because it's still as valuable. Okay. Yeah. yeah I, I think for me, um, the, the reality is doing this work is the only way I know how to live with myself. I mm. think at the point, at this point, um, which is sad, I guess, when you think about it. Um, but it's also like immensely rewarding and such a huge um, privilege to have found a space that reflects my um, political inclinations or you know my my personal values and drives. Um, and it's been one of like the biggest, I guess, privileges of my life really. And and planning climate rally, I did not think how like life affirming it would be. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was really like the most important thing I feel like I've done and so you know like how do you negotiate like something that doesn't pay you anything um but gives you a reason to live uh Mm -hmm. versus like needing to work and feed yourself and your loved ones and you know these are the questions that I think will become more real for me in a year um Mm -hmm. but up until that point like yeah it's like things like what Chris said you know it's um realizing that I have probably you know one of the most amounts of you know economic social privilege uh, within the movement, and so like you know what can I do but you know take on this risk and take on this difficulty, um, and yeah, like I guess the, the the sort of questions of employment will follow. I I, I want to ask now, your movement is very heavily decentralized, right? Does that ever pose any issues when it comes to coordinating projects, right? Because I'm, you know, I I don't. It just came to my head, kind of like. How does that work when it comes to managing and organizing? Because I was thinking about my work with Wake Up Singapore, and 
everybody there's kind of a specialist like i have a stats nerd you know he does stats i have a meme guy you know it's very it's like that's all they do that's he, all he does is memes literally like all he does is look at memes and make memes and he's great at it you know so how does it work um when you're coordinating all of these diverse um very talented individuals you know um that are springing up that are decentralized you know how do you coordinate that if i can layer on that also like it's a question of resources and allocation of scarce resources right which then is it, that's the definition of politics how do we allocate the scarce resources we have um, and in a, an organization with a hierarchy the person at the top ultimately gets to make the final call or you have some sort of structured decision-making process whereas what you've been describing sounds very well decentralized to use that word again so how do you decide how to allocate your very scarce resources and in in particular like i guess here your 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 number one resource is the time and energy of the people involved do you leave that up to the individual or is there any sort of decision making process about the allocation mm. yeah these are big questions um i think within climate rally there is a active restructuring process happening that I'm a part of um, where you know, we're looking at exactly what you're saying. You know, like We don't want to be squandering the human energy and hours that go into running projects, right? And um, I think something that we're thinking about is within Climate Rally really having a sort of uh, routinely elected uh, core circle of people um, that sort of is re-elected every, I don't know, six months or so um, to really overview these new working group ideas and pitches and um, you know either say you have to rework this idea or you can go ahead and these are the kind of people that you can get in touch with from publicity or from education to support whatever campaign that you have um, yeah and I think that the way that we've been doing it right now hasn't quite implemented that idea of a core circle because it's still in the works but um, I think what we've done is basically if there are sort of big big questions that involve let's say uh, putting out a statement in solidarity with a particular group um, it would go through a sort of announcements chat where people uh, vote on a poll uh, and once we have a certain uh, sort of majority we will just go ahead with it um, yeah and so that's been uh, the case for the last year to varying success um, I think you're very right to point out that you know it, it it's a difficult model because you know people get tired so easily you want to make sure that you're you know really uh, maximizing each campaign and that you know you're cutting it uh, or, or rather you're, you're, you're uh, calling it off if it's not working and so something that we are trying to do in this new restructuring system is when you start in a working group you have a certain set of um, sort of guidelines and set of goals and you know if you feel like at any point you're not able to meet it then you are free to dissolve and you know it, it's setting up these guidelines to empower within the group deciding um how you want to use your time and resources um yeah and if it if it sort of uh requires effort and thought outside of the group then bringing it to the group in a bigger discussion um for like some sort of consensus-based decision making um to take place there as well um yeah so you know a lot of these things are uh, happening in real time this restructuring yeah 
we also have I think some you know like we have like a, a group of people called like the people support group who mm. who help with kind of not necessarily so much the allocation of resources but like you know undeniably you know there maybe are people who end up maybe taking on a bit too much work you know kind of picking up slack or whatever right and and so then these are the people who probably may get burned out quicker and things like that so that's mm. why we have I guess people spot group who are there to help with just general morale, but also just like trying to check in with these people, you know, looking at how they're doing and seeing whether or not some of this work that they're taking on can then be redistributed again. You know, you always kind of need to recalibrate. And so the, the people spot group is there to kind of like, yeah, proactively look at how some of these things can be distributed because, you know, yeah, you know, as much as you would like try to try and democratize it, you know, you know, for various reasons, somehow, you know, you know, certain people may end up taking the work. And so it's, it's then the people support group, uh, their job to come in and try and as much as possible mitigate that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I want to get just a general sense of your individual theories of change, right? Mm-hmm. You know, keeping in line with the decentralized theme here. Right? I'm sure there are going to be different ideas here, but maybe we could start with Anika. Um, yeah, what is your theory of change? How do you think it does happen, it should happen, it will happen? What do you think goes into making the revolution happen? Mm. <laughs> um, I think for me personally, it it aligns quite closely with Climate Rally in that I think that we need a sort of critical mass to push policymakers to set more ambitious policies. But recently of late, I've been thinking a lot about burnout and just like existential dread and you know, I think that's much more endemic uh, among young people um, these days. And yeah, I think a lot about, you know, the kind of um, fears that people have just on a day-to-day basis, right, of being alive right now, you know, in COVID times, uh, looking at how, you know, ice sheets are melting and introducing new diseases, right? Like, how do you contend with all these things as such a small person? Um, And I think for me, alongside this sort of collective action there also needs to be um, mass regeneration where people you know are given the space to feel upset about these things and to feel betrayed um, by these phenomena and the people who have enabled it right Um, and within that you know what do you do once you feel anguish and anger like we I would love to be you know a part of a future that um, then takes that f- emotion and, and, and turns it into, you know, uh, expanding activist possibilities, expanding uh, future possibilities. Um, yeah, and however that manifests, I'm, I'm really not sure at this point, but I think for me, I've been looking a lot at art and the work that, um, you know, creative communication can do to to uplift people, like in, in the wake of um, the elections when, you know, there wasn't an opposition uh, wipeout when, you know, we had a climate activist, Raisa, elected in parliament for the first time. You know, that was something to celebrate. And, you know, we really came together and, and, and felt so much for it. And, and I think that, you know, using these wins um, as opportunities for regeneration are also very good. But when you don't have wins, like what do you do with yourself, right? And so uh, part of what I hope to do is create a community to sustain people for a world where we get more losses than wins. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How about you, Christian? Yeah, I mean, it's like Onika, I don't think it's 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 wildly different from, from SG Climate Rally, but I think something, at least from kind of like my own uh, personal lived experiences as well coming uh, from, yeah, you know, uh, 
from, from I mean I mean with with very specific kind of like socioeconomic backgrounds and things like that thinking a lot about what does it mean to be of a certain class and how I guess the climate crisis also is an issue of class an issue of kind of like labor rights and and how kind of expanding sort of yeah the rights of workers the rights of individuals also can help with then you know um with people voicing out their own concerns and and, and if th- and if these concerns are fairly and justly acknowledged then we can obviously move towards i think a world that's a bit more co-created and a bit more collaborative uh, which will also then you know um necessarily i think um combat the climate crisis and and, and and get to a place where not just kind of like we are looking at more regenerative ways of, of living and being, but then everyone around us, you know, is, is, is more valued, not just for like the work they do, but also for the identities that they, 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 they hold. Um, so I think that's, that's, that's um, very important to me. And another thing that I wanted to add was also, um, you know, actively supporting existing structures that, that, point towards a regenerative future. So I think if you haven't already spotlit um, where's mutual aid, I think mm. mutual aid is a fantastic uh, thing that has come out of, of, of this year. Um, you know, just having it in a, in a spreadsheet and having it championed by so many people, um, these are things to celebrate and, and to really give visibility to. And I think for me, it's just so incredible that, that um, people are being encouraged to uh, sort of give unreservedly and you know learn how to ask as well and, and trust in the community um, yeah and so I think it's uh, my theory of change will also involve you know having a uh, society that also actively supports these mutual aid ventures that don't rely on the state for provisions and support yeah okay, actually I think that was, that was what I was, I was going to say in terms of kind of like trying to get people to recognize the importance of being in a community or being a citizen of, of, of this particular space, right? And what does it mean to engage actively in, in yeah, civic engagement or just, you know, I guess, fighting or advocating for the community you live in and, and, and making sure that, yeah, you know, everyone in that space feels the same way um, and, and is empowered. I know, um, like, anecdotally, I was... I think after the elections, I saw on like Twitter that there was someone, someone who put like a QR code on their, their lifts, their elevators. I don't know if you saw that, but like kind of like um, uh, planes that were traveling um, over their HDB. And so they were like, hey, yeah, you scan this QR code if you're affected by like the noise levels. You know, I want to try and write into our MP about this and I want to get data. And I was like, that's like super cool because it's just like a regular citizen who has now realized that there are people within their space that also may feel a certain way and, and, and feels compelled to, yeah, you know, bring in their voices, but also then take that on, 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 onto themselves to then go go to their MP to engage with them. And I think, yeah, just more modes or more, yeah, just being able to see that as something very important to do, I think is something that I hope uh, we do also with SG Camarelli and, and hope to kind of increase that consciousness. Mm-hmm. So I just have one last question here, which is that, you know, one thing that always stuck with me was, you know, a conversation that I had with like a coffee shop uncle. And then he just very flippantly told me over coffee. He was like, you know, y'all young people, y'all leftist, Marxist, whatever, right? You're all like this because you're young, right? You try to get to 30, 40, you got two kids, you got uh, HDB and all that kind of thing. You see if you're still a leftist, right? And that kind of stuck with me because I did kind of notice that that was how it tended to progress. That fire gets kind of extinguished along the way. 
how do you negotiate that? How do you deal with that? Like, is there a plan or sort of an idea about how to keep it going? And how do we keep it going for the next generation, generation after that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe I should answer yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, I, I, like, I, I just, is this I for us? Yeah. 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 Because, yeah, I'm 40. I have a kid. I have a mortgage to pay mm-hmm. on this place, mm-hmm. right? And the, the, the fact is, the I don't want my son to grow up in a world... I want him to have a world to grow up in, mm-hmm. right? Full stop. And, you know, this is the point I made uh, last week that if you look at how people, young people in their 20s wrote and thought about the future in the um, 50s versus the 70s versus the 90s versus today, it's a steadily decreasing amount of optimism, mm-hmm. right? People in the 50s or even the 70s talking about flying cars and living on the moon. People in the 90s are like, oh, end of history, right? Well, nothing's going to change now. And people today are like, wow, I, is the world even going to exist when we're old? You know, we don't know. So for me, that's, that's the, the, the being conscious of the fact that um, the you you know there we need to have a world to, and and wanting to have a better world for our children is is very much one of the things that keeps me going, mm. but also I think uh, being conscious of the fact that that is what capitalism does to us it grinds us down, mm. and forces us to become cogs in a big machine to perpetuate itself and to enrich elites mm. enrich capitalists, right so. That, you know, to, to then say, okay, I, I, I've got to just keep my head down and work to pay off my mortgage is to then um, basically accept the status quo and accept that uh, the, the world is not going to improve, to, to become part of the problem. Mm-hmm. You know, so for me, it's all about understanding structural issues as, as well. And, and um, if, if a coffee shop uncle were to say that to me, my... My response would be that uh, I've actually gotten more left as the older I get, mm-hmm. right? I think I was the most pro PAP when I was eighteen, and the most pro capitalism, and you know, <laughs> and then I went to university. My mind started opening up. You know, I started learning things, and I've grown more and more um, radical the older I get because I realize the fundamental problems that are facing us need to be addressed, or we're not going to have much of a world to uh you know to um and to you know for us to live in let alone Mm. our children and um it's about trade-offs you know i i there are plenty of things that i voluntarily give up or choose not to have uh in order to be able to do the work i do right Mm. i work basically i have two jobs one pays for the other and of course, the one that's completely unpaid is the activism one, running new narrative, right? And, and I choose to do that. And my family totally is very you know, supportive and they bought into it. And um, yeah, that, that's the kind of trade-offs that I, I, I choose to make. And you know, as Annika says, in, incredibly affirming to be able to do this work. But of course, uh, as you mentioned earlier, as we keep another theme that arises through all this podcast is recognizing the privilege that we have mm. to do this and privilege is responsibility, you know. So I also have a feel a very strong responsibility to do it. So it's, yeah, it's all those it's all those things, and that's what sustains me. Mm-hmm. So you're dealing with the ultimate global issue, but you're dealing with it purely from and you know your name is SG Climate Rally, 
and in a country which, in particular, hates cross-border, or at least our government, you know, very strongly discourages cross-border solidarity and political activism, uh, even if, even as it at the same time encourages foreign investment and uh, foreign capitalist influence on our government, on our policies, on our society, mm-hmm. it discourages foreign civil society activism and any sort of cross-border solidarity. Mm. How do you square this circle? Mm. Do you have, um, you know, are you working with climate change, climate crisis groups in other countries? Uh, and, and yeah, but more broadly, how do you address a global issue from purely the perspective of a small nation state? Mm. Uh, so I think that one thing that is worth underscoring is just the fact that despite Singapore's size, we are one of the biggest economies in Asia. And so we have these sort of investments and stakes already in, in you know various coal power plants outside of our shores, right? And so already there's this sense of responsibility and, and uh, a, a sort of shared stakes in the climate crisis. And, you know, our food systems are so undeniably tied to our neighbouring countries that, of course, there's no way we can turn a blind eye and, you know, fight for a fortress Singapore, which is, you know, a word that we, you know, uh, floats around our climate rally uh, quite often. It's this idea that we want to actively, you know, problematize the idea of a hundred uh, million million billion? billion going into building up a fortress Singapore and, and creating seawalls against our neighbors. And um, yeah, I think that within Climate Rally, we have been reaching out to climate activists um, all around. More recently, in June, was it? We had a uh, sort of webinar with climate activists in Thailand to discuss the fires that are happening in Chiang Mai. And so these are just a few of the, I guess, um, connections that are needed to be made. Um, no, but also I think what we want to rec- what we want people to acknowledge and what we hope people recognize is just with kind of like the size of like our economy or the kind of capital we have, the kind of like exploitation that also we 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 um, you know are complicit in, right? Um, we put out an infographic a while ago about sand mining and and, and what we're doing when we pride um, relentless growth, right? The, you know where does the sand come from? You know to build and things like that. What kind of ecosystems are we destroying in the process? And in kind of like. Yeah, can we acknowledge that power differential there? And so then it's also about trying to get people to be a bit more self-reflexive in kind of what are we what what you know what 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 are we what are we doing when when we're when we're putting some of these countries uh, in these positions and how can we acknowledge and be accountable for some of these things? Um, and that also then comes with maybe working with people on the ground in these in these communities and these other countries to see like yeah can we actually form solidarity because there are some people you know in Singapore who don't necessarily agree with some of these practices and and, and yeah and, and, and our movement is, is one of those movements right how can we perform but also show allyship. So I guess last question, what next for SG Climate Rally? What do you guys have uh, planned in store? What What are you going to do next? Yeah, um, okay, so we're not, it's not necessarily maybe what next, but kind of what's going on right now. And obviously this 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 carries on for a while. Um, something that we've started is this campaign called Take Back 2050. So the premise is that we're trying to imagine, yeah, imagine a different world. A lot of times we focus a lot on kind of what is what is bad and, 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 and the problems that we have currently and, and the things that we're facing, which is which we have to do for sure. But at the same time, right, 
can we imagine this world that we want to strive towards? And I, I guess the idea is that some of these, yeah, maybe more utopian visions um, are not that, you know, they're not unachievable. They are things that we can get towards. And so the idea is that we're trying to crowdsource submissions uh, from, yeah, from, from you know, just, you know, regular Singaporeans and, and, and people who call Singapore home um, to try and imagine, you know, if we successfully avert the climate crisis, what will this Singapore in 2050 look like? And so the plan is to, yeah, get people to imagine and, and hopefully by from, from, from that we can build sort of an image that we want to strive to, to go towards and from there also um, that will help with co-developing our our calls to action, you know, the movement has evolved. And so we want to also then construct calls to action that are a bit more representative of, of where we are right now. And hopefully, yeah, the calls to action then will also be sort of a roadmap towards the 2050 that, yeah, it seems like everyone wants to head towards. Yeah. So that's on our website. Um, yeah, I think another thing that uh, I would say is that this is more of a broad philosophical stance of climate rally moving forward is that, you know, it used to be that we thought our work would end um, as soon as climate targets were met in this utopian future. But I think premising our existence on climate justice kind of further complicates it, right? Because now the work really never does end. And as long as there exists systemic injustices we will continue to exist and the work will continue to be done and we are very excited to do it so. so if there are any young activists out there looking to get started looking to join you looking to get involved how should they do it how should they go about or actually any old actor anyone anyone, anyone. Yeah. Yeah. this yes. affects yes. all of us yeah. right? how do we get involved yeah yeah you can DM us on Instagram uh, or on Facebook, SG Climate Rally. And Twitter also. Twitter as well. You can also shoot us an email. Um, we check it quite regularly and we will certainly respond. And yeah, I think the thing that we do is, is um, yeah, just sort of not turn our backs to really anybody who agrees with our principles and wants to come on board. And yeah, I think at the moment we are restructuring and so hoping to ensure that new members who come on board are not left sort of hanging. Um, but yeah, I think certainly if you reach out and talk to us, we will uh, re reply and be happy to have you. Can I press you a bit on that? Because I've had people reach out a new narrative and they say, well, they're older people. I don't, I don't, what Instagram, lah, Twitter, I don't have, <laughs> you know, maybe they have a Facebook account, they have email at best, but they reach out and they want to help. Mm. How can someone help if they're completely offline? Yeah, I think I think that's something that we we, we are thinking a lot about. Um, you know, uh, going back to this idea of organizing, right? That also r means that we cannot exist completely online. Um, so, I mean, I think there are ways in which we are. There are things that we're thinking about. You know, how do we engage people? How do we work the ground essentially, right? How do we engage people offline? Um, so. Yeah, if people want to engage with us and do something that's offline, we really want to start doing that. Mm. Um, you know, um, so the more ideas, the better. Yeah, I guess it's also a question of accessibility, right? Mm. We talked yeah. about privilege and, and those challenges. Uh, but having that technology is also a privilege sure. and we really need mm. to ensure that our movements encompass people who don't, uh, you know, don't necessarily have that access. Mm. Yeah. 
Okay, so thank you so much to uh, my guests, Annika and Christian from SG Climate Rally for coming down, talking to us, um, really going through the whole philosophy of organizing, the philosophy of climate change that's coming up, right, as well as your ideas as to how to speak to power uh, and all of the very enlightened things that we've been talking about. Uh, anyway, I want to thank PJ so much for having me on as co-host again. Okay, yeah. So <laughs> thank you very much, Christian, Annika. All the best to you. I've, I really enjoyed this conversation. I learned a lot. Thank you, Sean, for co-hosting. As always, fantastic questions thank you. and thank you to you our audience for listening uh, do check out our sister podcast southeast asia dispatches for more news interviews and commentary from around southeast asia check out newnarrative.com for more stories on southeast asia and as always if you enjoy what we're doing and you'd like to support us please go to newnarrative.com slash join to join as a member we really do need more members or go to newnarrative.com slash donate to donate to our cause thank you very much and see you next time Where you think that you're gonna go? This is utopia. Please stay where you are. We've come way too far. Where you think that you're gonna go?